Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Can you remember how old you were when you first became aware of the country of Afghanistan? Maybe you remember Afghanistan being the site of a conflict between the United States and Russia. For me personally, I didn't really know anything about the country until September 11th of 2001, when average American citizens suddenly became aware of something called the Taliban. And along with the rest of the country, I suddenly learned a lot of information about the country over the next couple of decades but all filtered through Western media, never from Afghans themselves or anything that was really Afghanistan-centric. My personal connection to the country began in the fall of 2022 when our family met a family who had recently immigrated to the U.S. as refugees from Afghanistan. The dad of the family had fought as a soldier against the Taliban. So in 2021, when the Taliban entered the province where they lived and took over, This family fled for their lives, and thankfully, they were able to get help from the U.S. government as they needed passports and flights and resettlement for their family. They have five kids, ages 10 down to eight months, and our family helps them with whatever they need. We're kind of their contact people here in the U.S., and we spend most Sundays with them. And we really, really love this family. We've become great friends. And sometimes when I look in the faces of There are three little girls. I imagine what life might have been like if they had stayed in Afghanistan. I keep reading about the restrictions that the Taliban has placed upon women again. And the first time I went over to their house, I met them and hung out with them for a couple of hours. And then I cried all the way home in the car because suddenly the stories that I had been reading in the news were suddenly very, very real to me. At the same time, the last time that we were at the family's house just last week, Their kids were telling me in their rapidly improving English all the things that they used to love to do when they were back at home. And they kept saying, Afghanistan, good. Afghanistan, good. And I learned all about how Afghanistan has the best watermelons in the world. And they showed me videos of farmers growing watermelons in their home province surrounded by green grass and trees and rivers, which I hadn't pictured green grass and trees and rivers when I pictured Afghanistan. And then I asked them what they used to like to do when they were at home. And they just lit up saying they love to ride their bikes and they love to swim and they miss their friends. And then I cried all the way home again that day, but for a different reason. I was reminded of something that I've learned over and over this season, that in places where people have encountered massive injustice and oppression and violence, those people are incredibly resilient and strong. And everywhere on this earth, children love to ride bikes and swim and eat watermelon and play with their friends. Every culture is complex and beautiful and can't be described with just a single story, especially when that story is told by someone on the outside. And so today, I'm really honored to present a complex picture of Afghanistan and the gender dynamics in that country. And I am deeply grateful to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bahar Jalali, who will share her expertise and her personal experience. Welcome, Bahar. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you share, really, like I said, your professional expertise, but also your personal experience. And I wonder if you could start us off by telling us about yourself, where you grew up, your family of origin and education, and your professional career as well. Sure. So I was born in Afghanistan. And when I was only four and a half, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And shortly afterwards, me and my family fled to the United States where I grew up and where I was educated. And so my earliest childhood memory was of Russia, war, invasion. Those were very vivid childhood memories for me. But I also remember in Afghanistan that was at least in Kabul, the capital where I was born and, and, you know, spent the first years of my life. I remember a country that was very, you know, moving towards urbanization, modernization. Growing up in the United States, it was a little difficult having this hybrid identity of being Afghan and being an American, having that immigrant background, born to our country. I remember when we first moved to the United States, most people hadn't even heard of Afghanistan or, you know, if they ask you where you're from, we say Afghanistan. Well, you know, they didn't even know that it was a country. And so growing up and trying to navigate that dual identity was very difficult. And then when I went to, you know, I grew up in the D.C. area. I went to the University of Maryland. Then for graduate school, I decided to study Middle East studies. And that's when I began to take an interest in learning about Afghanistan academically. 
at the University of Chicago and UC Berkeley. And so that's how I got into Middle East studies. I got my MA and PhD in that field. And then in 2001, as I started my PhD program, that's when 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened right at the beginning, the first week of my PhD program. And by that point, I had already written my master's thesis on Afghanistan. And of course, the media, right, was depicting Afghanistan as this, you know, terrorist haven. And of course, the Taliban, I mean, I think it's important to remember that the Taliban are not an indigenous Afghan movement. It's a proxy force of Pakistan. And so it's very, very difficult when Afghanistan and the Taliban are always in the same sentence, because I think the overwhelming majority of people are not aware that this is not a movement that's homegrown in Afghanistan. So that's what really made me more, even more passionate about pursuing Near Eastern studies. And so I decided to write my doctoral dissertation on 1960s Afghanistan a time when my parents' generation, when Afghanistan was governed by a a secular ruling elite, when women got the right to vote and a liberal constitution was adopted in 1964, it was my way of trying to counter the narrative that this is a country that's always been stuck in time, it's been a, it was a hermit kingdom, always isolated, those typical Orientalist tropes. And, you know, Afghanistan, even within academia, is a very understudied country and region. And I remember at, at Berkeley, it was a bit of a challenge to make a case for why this was worthy of a doctoral dissertation. I felt like I almost had to justify why I was doing that. So even within and you know, in and out of academia, I felt that. Afghanistan remained this kind of, you know, enigma. And it's really not an enigma. And so that's how, you know, I entered academia. And ever since I graduated, I've taught courses on Afghanistan's history. But in 2009, I returned to Afghanistan. And it was a country that looked nothing like my childhood. It was a country that I didn't feel I was even born in because it looked so different when I left. And I began teaching at the American University of Afghanistan. And initially, I thought I was going to do that for one or two years. It ended up being eight and a half years where I taught courses on the history of Afghanistan in 2015. I established the first gender studies program in the history of Afghanistan. And, you know, it was probably the most rewarding experience I've ever had in my life, because not only was I teaching something I love, but I was like educating a whole new generation that did not want to, you know, didn't want war to be the future for Afghanistan and for their country. And then in 2016, the university was attacked by by the Taliban. I'm a survivor of that attack, but I lost colleagues and students. And shortly after that experience in 2017, I decided to leave for security reasons. And my family was like, you know, you've done your part. You've given back to your home, your birth country, too risky to remain there. And so I left in 2017. But I continue to teach courses on Afghanistan. I continue to participate in programs that raise awareness about Afghanistan, especially in trying to deconstruct these, you know, stereotypes about Afghanistan as a country full of xenophobia, a country where modernization is, you know, is alien to its culture. It's very ahistorical, number one. But number two, it just kind of goes along with those standard Orientalist tropes, you know, about about the Middle East, about, you know, Asia, Islam, or what have you. So I feel like my personal life experience has kind of, you know, become a big part of my professional life. Hmm. Well, for, thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so sorry to hear about the attack in 2016 and to know that you lost people who are dear to you. Was that a bombing at the university or what happened? It was a complex attack. So suicide bombers detonated their explosives and that's how they managed to infiltrate the campus. And once inside the campus, they resorted to all types of different attacks. Like they were, they were throwing grenades into the classrooms. They were shooting anybody that they could, you know, within sight. And so it, it was a complex attack. And of course, it was not only an attack on the university. It was an attack on the future of Afghanistan, right? One of the ways that you try to you know, win a war or make the other side lose is that it was also a bit of a psychological war, you know, when you keep a country, you know, when education becomes inaccessible, that's how you destroy a country. And that was that was basically their tactic. Now, I did decide to return for the reopening of the university shortly after the attack. But then I just felt that it was time to move on for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Again, I'm so sorry to hear that. One one more question that I wanted to ask before we dive into Afghan history is just where you teach now and what is the work that you do right now in the United States? I teach at the Loyola University of Maryland and I teach in the history department and I teach courses on Middle East history, women and gender in the Middle East. I've taught a course on the history of Afghanistan and I'll be teaching a course on Iran. So mostly I'm the Middle East historian there. Oh, fabulous. Well, we will try. I want to like talk fast so that we can get all of this library of, of experience and, and knowledge into this episode. So I'd like to start, actually, if you could kind of lay the land for us and give us some context and go back to kind of the earliest, you know, humans that lived in what is now Afghanistan. Tell us a little bit about even just where it is on the map and who's lived there and what are some major landmark events and phenomena throughout Afghan history. So Afghanistan has a very unique geography. It's located at the confluence of four different regions. So there's a very famous label attached to Afghanistan called the heart of Asia, because it's right in the center. And so up north, you know, it borders the Middle East through a border with Iran, a border South Asia through a border with Pakistan, and then, of course, borders East Asia through a small border with China. And then also in the north borders the Central Asian states. So it's very difficult to put a geographic category on Afghanistan because it is really, you know, at the confluence of four different African zones. Traditionally, you know, in most atlases, it's listed as South Asia or Central Asia, sometimes even part of the Middle East. But it's very difficult to put a label on Afghanistan. It's a a very diverse, multi-ethnic country. And the first time that we really hear about anything that could referred to Afghanistan is, you know, in recorded history is during the Persian Achaemenid period when Afghanistan was part of that Persian empire. And throughout centuries, you know, Persians, Greeks, Mongols, Turks have ruled over Afghanistan, making it a very, very, very diverse region. Of course, Islam came to Afghanistan in the 8th century. And of course, the most important date in the history of Afghanistan is 1747, the middle of the 18th century, when it emerged as a distinct political entity. So there was no place on world maps called Afghanistan before 1747. That's when Afghanistan as a political state first emerges. And when it does is that when it becomes really a political entity, you see different parts of the country. So parts of Afghanistan were once ruled by the Indian Mughal dynasty. It's actually a Turkic dynasty. Other parts of Afghanistan were ruled by the Persian dynasty, the Safavids, and other parts by the Central Asian Khanates. So you have these divided regions which become unified and become Afghanistan in 1747. Now, Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic country, but the ethnic group that founded Afghanistan and that ruled over the country and was made, the, made up the dominant political class for most of its history were the Pashtun ethnic group, the Pashtuns. And the Pashtuns, of course, are like an Indo-Aryan ethnic group. And then you have the Tajiks. Tajiks also Indo-Aryan ethnic group, similar to the Pashtuns. You also have Tajiks, of course, in Iran and Tajikistan. And then you've got the Hazaras. And according to some historians, they are the descendants of Cengiz Khan that invaded the Middle East in the 13th century. Now, that genealogy has is disputed by some by some scholars, but... Most Hazaras do have a very East Asian appearance, which makes them stand out in Afghanistan compared to the other ethnic groups. Now, Hazaras, ever since the late 19th century, have been a heavily persecuted and discriminated group in Afghan society. A lot of it has to do with, you know, the fact that they're easily distinguishable, they're East Asian features, but also that they are adherents of the minority sect of Islam, Shia Islam, and Afghanistan is the dominant, you know, the sect of Islam is Sunni Islam. So they face both racial discrimination and religious discrimination, sectarian discrimination. And then you've got Turkic ethnic groups, Uzbeks, Turkmen, Kyrgyz, and then you've got other ethnic groups, the Nuristanis, the Pashai. So we're looking at a very, very diverse country in, in terms of ethnicity. And But, you know, nowadays, ethnicity and identity politics 
have become so politicized that oftentimes when scholars, uh, you know, ordinary people talk about ethnicity in Afghanistan, they talk in terms of very rigid social hierarchies. And of course that existed, but ethnicity was also very fluid in the sense that you saw intermarriage between different ethnic groups. You saw relationships. And a lot of this, this ethnic politics that has emerged has been a symptom of almost five decades of war in Afghanistan and how neighboring countries have had their internal clients and how that has also amplified the ethnic tensions, which of course were always there, but has made it appear as if, you know, this was always a burning issue in Afghan society where it was much less pronounced in a peacetime Afghanistan. Now, what makes Afghanistan very unique today is that ever since 1978, it is a country that has not seen peace and that we're talking, we're looking at almost half a century, right? Now, a country that has been at war for almost 50 years, it's important to remember that that would not have been the case if you didn't have so many different regional and global powers intervening in, in, inside Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan today is a broken state. Many call it a failed state, but it's important to understand that how we got there is the result of multiple powerful political actors who have been engaged in Afghanistan. There is no way that Afghans could have done this much damage on their own as a poor country with limited resources. And so that that's what makes Afghanistan unique. So when we say, you know, what's problematic in the narrative on Afghanistan is that this is a failed state, this is a broken state, they can't get it together. Absolutely, Afghans share a very large share of the blame, this you know, terrible situation, but it is very, very important not to underestimate the role and you know, participation of global actors, especially in the 1980s when Afghanistan became a battlefield of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and Af the United States. So one thing I forgot to mention is that in the 19th century, Afghanistan was really one of the epicenters of the Great Game, which was a geopolitical competition between Imperial Russia and Great Britain for influence in Central Asia. And that's really how Afghanistan emerged as a state in the late 19th century. So 1747 is the most first most important date in modern Afghan history. The second is probably 1880, when Afghanistan emerges as a modern state with clearly defined boundaries and as a buffer zone. I mean, the reason why Afghanistan has the borders that it does today is because of the Anglo-Russian rivalry that led Afghanistan to become a buffer zone. So it's a country that's very diverse, but it's also a country that many consider to be irrelevant or isolated. But when you look at the history of Afghanistan, in the past 150 years, it has been invaded by three superpowers. First, the Great Britain and the two Anglo-Afghan wars of the 19th century. And then, of course, the Soviet Union in 1979 and then the U.S. in 2001. So it's really it's very much an international country, on, on, you know, on the contrary. And so I think the reason why we are where we are today is that it has been it's a country that has always seen, in, you know, intervention by major powers. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about is from an article that I read by a professor at UC San Diego, and I read an article about the kind of gendered history of Afghanistan. And she mentions a few different rulers of Afghanistan and kind of a back and forth of women's rights. Can you talk about a little bit about that? So formal rights for women can be traced to the era of Amir Abdurrahman Khan in the late 19th century. That's the very first time that you see a government of Afghanistan formally recognizing women's rights, which included things like allowing women to sue for alimony, divorce. Now, divorce, of course, is, is, is enshrined in Islam, but it's heavily stigmatized in Afghanistan. And that's because, of course, Islam spread very rapidly outside of Arabia. And in each culture where Islam spread to, it kind of mixed in with the local culture. So Amir Abdurrahman Khan was basically trying to give women rights that was enshrined to them within Islam, but also trying to free women from some of those onerous Afghan customs. For example, there's a custom in Afghan society that when a woman becomes a widow, she must marry her brother-in-law. The logic behind is that she will have a caretaker. And in a heavily patriarchal society, a woman cannot remain single without a caretaker, right? And also in a country like Afghanistan, you know, how is she going to survive economically if there isn't a man to take care of her? But it's also a very oppressive custom because what if you don't want to marry your brother-in-law, right? 
What if you're not attracted to him? What if you, you're, you're grossed out by the idea or for whatever reason there may be, right? Mm-hmm. And to defy that custom was, it could bring up a lot of hardship to women. So that was one custom that Amir Abdurrahman Khan, he made a conscious effort to, he did ban it, right? So as you could see, Amir Abdurrahman Khan was a controversial figure in that he forcibly pacified Afghanistan through very violent means. But at the same time, he's also the first feminist leader of Afghanistan, and he was a man. So, you know, he was a very complex figure. But it's also important to understand that these these decrees that he issued probably had very little to no application in society. And even if they if they did, it was probably only with confined to a small elite within the capital city urban areas. But I do think that these are not just symbolic measures, right? It really helps to debunk the idea that there's never been any kind of indigenous reform movement in Afghanistan, that, you know, Afghan men, Afghan leaders have always been inherently misogynistic. And Amir Abdurrahman Khan also interestingly tried to neutralize and curtail the power of the religious establishment, the power of the Islamic clerics, and he was quite mm-hmm. successful in that. He stripped them of their economic independence, he made them state bureaucrats, he he made them dependent on government policies. But unfortunately, his successor and his son, Amir Habibullah, who ruled from 1901 to 1919, he's credited with starting the era of modernization. But yet he reversed some of those liberal policies of his father. For example, he re-empowered religious establishments who were often opposed to these, you know, decrees, these kind of feminist decrees that Amir Abdurrahman Khan issued. But at the same time, we do see women emerging into public life, right? With both Abdurrahman and with Amir Abibullah, right? So I think that's important. If you take a look at the photos of Amir Abibullah in the early early 20th century, and you see him with his wives and his family, you know, the way they're dressed, it could be like, you know, the royal family of Germany or somewhere like that. And and nowadays we live in a time where clothing has also become very politicized. Well, just because they're wearing Western type clothing, does that really make them modern or does that make them sellouts? I I do think that it is important. It's more than just symbolic because it, it really demonstrated that the Afghan rulers were not isolated country bumpkins. They were in tune with the times right? They were aware of what was going on in the world, and they were much more sophisticated than they are portrayed. And then, of course, from 1919 to 1929 is when we have the most popular and most famous Afghan reformer, King Amanullah, who tried to radically modernize Afghanistan through, you know, some something some have called shock therapy. You know, King Amanullah has his admirers and has he has his detractors, and a lot of people have blamed him for going too fast and, and attempting to implement very radical reforms that Afghanistan was simply not ready for and did not have the prerequisites for. But when we look at some of his reforms, for example, he he's the he's the one who established the first girls schools so he formalized female education he came up with a new system of administrative laws a, a new law code which stated that you know giving women vast rights he banned polygamy am- among government officials his wife queen saraya was one of the first muslim women to be seen without a veil in 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 western countries he went on a long global tour of europe and the middle east his wife accompanied him and as you, if you look at the images from that period, you know, they both look very, very elegant. They both look like, you know, a, a happily married couple. And then, of course, he came up with Afghanistan's first constitution and the economic reforms, carry reforms, the, modern, the, the, the implementation of modern schools. And unfortunately, his vast program of reforms have kind of been, you know, overshadowed by some of his more hasty reforms. For example, when he came, when he traveled to Europe, he was shocked by how behind Afghanistan was, and so he came back to Afghanistan, really kind of emotionally charged. And he, one of the decrees he came up with was, well, anyone living in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, or visiting Kabul, must wear Western clothes. So that was a little capricious, mm. right? And that was something that could easily undermine his, you know, very significant program of reforms. And of course, he had plenty of enemies who kind of you know mis- misrepresented what he was trying to do. So although in 1929 he was overthrown by reactionary forces, and although it is true that a lot of what he was trying to do was hasty, 
His reforms set a very, very powerful and enduring precedent, and his successors continued many of his reforms. So whenever we look to women's rights or, you know, bringing women into the public sphere, the uh, formalizing education for women, we have to look back to the period of 1919 to 1929. Now, when King Amarala was overthrown, a new dynasty was established, which actually continued modernization, but a much slower, more gradual pace. And by the 1960s, that more gradual modernization did begin to have impact because in 1959, Prince Dawood, who was from that new dynasty, the Masaiban family, he abolished mandatory veiling. But one thing he did more successfully than King Amanullah was that he did it in a very low-key, very strategic manner, right? He didn't have all of this public campaigns to unveil he didn't do it very explicitly. So basically in 1959, during one of the holidays, the women of the royal family emerged publicly without any veil, without any type of head covering, and in a very kind of matter of a fact way, like this is it, right? There was no public announcement. There was no like, you know, publicity. It just happened. Nobody talked about it. Nobody said anything, but here we go. Here come the women of the royal family and nobody's wearing a veil. And everybody was shocked. But it it was also a nonverbal statement that any woman who does not want to wear the veil will receive government support. And so from that time onwards, what we see is that we see a, a slow but steady, you know, movement to I wouldn't call it a movement, but just a slow but steady development of women emerging into public life. And in 1963, of course, a new era was dawned in Afghanistan, the decade of democracy, where women's suffrage was formally enshrined in the 1964 constitution. In 1965, the first women were elected to parliament. The first woman was appointed to a cabinet post, minister of public health. And, you know, that was a time that, you know, it was my parents' generation. My own mother got married in 1969 in a miniskirt, but people often say that a miniskirt is not a symbol of reform and modernization. Well, that's fair enough, but I think it's important to understand that in a, a, Afghanistan was a conservative society, but the fact that women could dress, wear a miniskirt, and, and not fear harassment or judgment and coexist with women who are more conservative or who are more covered says something about the emerging pluralism that was developing, at least in Kabul, right? Now, Mm -hmm. this was a country that had only been modernizing for decades. And by the 60s, you see some pretty impressive reforms. Of course, they were limited to the urban areas, but I'm pretty sure that if we didn't have the Soviet invasion and the beginning of decades of war, gradually those reforms would have you know, spread to the rural areas because my own mother, she she studied all over the country because her father was a civil servant. She lived in all the different provinces of Afghanistan. And she says, you know, I could wear a miniskirt in Kabul, in Kandahar, in Herat. And nobody said anything. Nobody cared. I've seen her pictures. And so it, it says something about the mentality that this is this was not a country that was always extremist or radical. But in the 60s, you do begin to see an Islamist movement emerge that was kind of more influenced by developments of the Muslim Brotherhood. Many of the members of the Afghan Islamist movement had studied in Egypt. Uh, They had been influenced by more radical ideologies. But that movement was was not embraced at all in the 60s by mainstream Afghan society. And then by the 70s, you have, you know, continuing liberalization. So from 19, I would say from the time of Abdurrahman Khan in the late 19th century, all the way to 1978, you know, which was the fall of the old regime, you have different degrees of modernization, Right. But it was it was an unbroken chain of modernization. Obviously, it began with Abdurrahman. There were modest decrees, Amir Abibullah Khan, beginning of modernization. And then in the 20s, you have this earth-shattering reformer come to power, King Amanullah, who failed in his bid to radically modernize Afghanistan, but left a very, very powerful legacy. And then from the 1930s to the 19, late 1970s, you have a steady period of peace but also accompanied by gradual modernization. And then, of course, in 1978, you have the fall of the old regime. You have the communists come to power 
who implement very drastic policies that are met with a very, very fierce backlash by conservative forces, the uh, Mujahideen, the Islamist forces. But those Islamist forces would not have succeeded in culturally transforming Afghanistan had it not been for all the outside assistance they received. The transformation of Afghanistan from a country that was modernizing, that became more you know, dominated by conservatives, was circumstance of war and the geopolitics of foreign intervention. Yeah, could you say a little bit more about that? When the so the Soviets came in, and I'm just honestly, I haven't studied this, but I'm assuming because I know that Soviet policy was more egalitarian, at least in terms of gender. So I'm guessing when they came into Afghanistan, did they push things too far for the you know conservative? Are you saying like kind of the Islamists who were getting more power reacted strongly against that part of the the Soviet culture? Yeah, so it's a little complicated. So the modernization policies that were being implemented by the former, by the old regime, right? It's important to understand that the royal family had a lot of political legitimacy in Afghanistan. So even if they were doing something that was perceived to be radical, nobody questioned their legitimacy, right? But in 1978, the the old order, the old regime is gone. And we have these communists with no political foundation in Afghanistan, Number one, they have no popular support in society. They have no administrative competence. They don't know how to run a country. And number three, they resort to immense violence to -hmm. stay in power. That was a regime that was not going to survive in Afghanistan for all the reasons that I mentioned. And so what they do to survive is they implement a reign of terror. And so eventually the Soviets realize that the only way the communist regime is going to survive in Afghanistan is if we supported militarily, which means, and so the communist regime begged the Soviet Union to support it with combat troops, to formally to occupy Afghanistan. And so, and also the communist regime, there was a lot of infighting. It was a very unstable regime. So the Soviets invade. And yes, of course, from 1978 to 1992, when the communists were in power, yes, you you see you don't see you know formally in the areas where they were able to control in Afghanistan you see you know the continuation of what you had in the ever since you know the 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s and 70s right but because the afghan communist regime was so unpopular so brutal so incompetent the overwhelming majority of the afghan population rejected it mm-hmm. and also the resistance to the afghan communist regime were heavily armed and funded by the United States. And so that empowered them, enriched them immensely. Now, who was the resistance to the communist regime? Their leaders were the people who founded the Afghan Islamist movement in the 1960s, which was a movement that was completely out of sync with mainstream Afghan society. So you have a marginalized group that suddenly becomes empowered and enriched through the CIA as, as right. part of their counter-interventionist policy to defeat the Soviet Union in, as part of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by is, you know, the geopolitics has really had a huge impact on women in Afghanistan because indigenous Afghan regimes from much of the 20th century in various degrees did promote modernization. You know, it, it was not like France or England, but it was a country that was slowly but steady moving in that direction. And with the occupation of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union and the involvement of the U.S., you begin to see the empowerment of very reactionary forces in Afghan society, forces who were hitherto really marginalized uh, Mm -hmm. uh, groups. And that's when you begin to see in the 1980s a cultural transformation take place in Afghanistan, where once the Soviet Union withdraws from Afghanistan, once the war is over by 1992, these were now considered the heroes of that war, the Islamic resistance to the Soviet occupation, right? They considered themselves the winners, the liberators of Afghanistan. And so when they come to power in 1992, they implement policies that never existed in Afghanistan before related to women, like controlling women's movements in public sphere, banning women from working in radio, something called criminalizing running away from home. So if a woman ran away from home, let's say she's being abused by her parents or she refuses to enter into a forced marriage, she runs away from home, that began, something like that began to be criminalized in 1992. 
So, you know, unfortunately, some of these reactionary forces have been empowered by major superpowers like the United States, the regional countries. So many Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iran have been involved, in, you know, by funding and arming their own different Afghan group that hold very reactionary views. So I, I do believe that life for women was much better under the old regime. I mean, I'm not saying it was great. But relatively speaking, mm-hmm. uh, compared to the last 50 years, I think if we didn't have the onset of war in 1979 and the fall of the old regime in 1978, we would have seen a completely different Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So in 1992, is that when the first time that women were forced to wear the burqa, which is the covering from head to toe, basically, with just the little mesh tri- or rectangle over the eyes? Or when did that start? So the burqa has been worn in Afghanistan for a long time, but it was up in, you know, after 1959, it was voluntary, right? Uh, mm-hmm, right. Different regions of Afghanistan have different head coverings. The burqa is what you see in mostly Pashtun areas. In the north of Afghanistan, in the south of, in the west of Afghanistan, you might see a, a black headscarf and that said no face covering. Mm-hmm. In the north of Afghanistan, they have their own special head coverings. The blue burqa is what which is what many people might be used to seeing on TV or in media images, is something that you that, that was found in one part of the country. And, you know, by the 60s and 70s, it, it was really not something that urban women ever would wear, right? I mean, in the 70s, women wore miniskirts. So, you know, up until 1959, it was pretty customary. But after the abolition of mandatory veiling, it was really a woman's choice if she wanted to wear it or not. Mm-hmm. After 1992, you begin to see regression in the sense that the burqa was not mandated, but head coverings, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like dressing more modestly, wearing a headscarf, that became more of the norm because you now had a government come into power that held much more conservative views. It was the Taliban when they when they take Kabul in 1996 who mandate the burqa. Okay. Uh, Okay, really quick also, just so I have it clear in my mind. So the U.S. support the Mujahideen because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so they hate the Soviets so much that they'll support this conservative Islamist movement to to kick the Soviets out. Then did the U.S., I mean, the U.S. seized the Mujahideen and their way more conservative policies toward women. Did the U.S. say anything or did they just get out? They're just like, okay, we're out now because we won this proxy war or whatever. We won this. Yeah. There was only one objective in that war, and that was to defeat the Soviet Union, yeah, get revenge for Vietnam. And they didn't, nobody cared about women. <laughs> women were not an issue, right? Yeah. And there's a great book about that by Steve Cole. It's called Ghost Wars. Mm-hmm. The secret history of U- U.S. CIA bin Laden from 1970 to 2001, September 10, 2001, which really talks about what U.S. policy was during the Soviet-Afghan war. It was just defeat the Soviets and, you know, let Pakistan do whatever they want to in Afghanistan. So that okay. was really, and of course it backfired. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so then the Mujahideen was in charge. They were egregiously mismanaging everything. No. Nobody really liked them, right? They weren't popular. You said like the majority well, of Afghans. There were different factions. They were all fighting okay. each other. After 1992, the so during the Soviet-Afghan war, the Mujahideen were or supposedly on a united front against the Soviet occupation. Mm-hmm. Once the Soviets leave and the war is over, these different Mujahideen factions now turn their guns against each other. Okay. And it turns into an ethnic war because all of these different Mujahideen factions represented different ethnic groups, different sectarian groups. And from 1992 to 1996, you have the Afghan civil war, which was different mm-hmm. Mujahideen groups fighting one another for power. And none of them were, n- none of them was able to emerge and gather a large national following. And of course, the Afghan people became, of course, casualties. Now, as far as women are concerned, during the Afghan civil war from 1992 to 1996, you have a state of complete anarchy, chaos, and lawlessness. That means you had very arbitrary rapes, all types of sexual violence, very, very brutal murders. And so by 1996, when the Taliban first emerged, there were some people who were kind of quite happy. One, because people still didn't know what the Taliban represented, but but the Taliban did bring security, right? There was an end to those 
types of extrajudicial killings, those random rapes. So there was absolutely no security during the Afghan civil war. So in many ways, I mean, I've heard people say that the Mujahideen period was much, much worse. People, I'm talking about people who were there in, in Afghanistan at the, during that, and then the communist period. Because, of course, with the, with the communists, you don't have all of these, you know, conservative regulations, strict regulations. But also, you didn't really have this kind of anarchy that existed from 1992 to 1996. And when the Taliban come, they do bring security, but then they basically deprive women of all their rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us some of the policies of the Taliban, especially regarding women? So they come to power for the first time. They take Kabul in 1996, although they had been emerging in other provinces in 1994. So they basically ban women from getting an education, getting a job, having a job, the right to move around, leave their homes unattended without a male guardian, and also the dress. So they had to wear a burqa and their ankles could not be showing. So if you look at a burqa, it's a very flowing garment where, which, you know, if, if there's a little bit of wind or something, it could easily reveal, you know, a person's ankles. So they set up a, a notorious ministry called the Ministry for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice, which was this notorious moral police that could, you know, arbitrarily punish women for something as minor as her ankles not being fully covered. So um, a woman could, you know, arbitrarily be accused of adultery with no access to due process or any type of justice. And that you had all of these public executions in the soccer stadium during the Taliban period. And, and some of them were, you know, televised, not televised, but they were images appeared in the media where there was a woman. I remember there was one woman who had been accused of adultery. Even her own in-laws for, had forgiven her. Now, there was no there was no evidence. Right. There was no investigation, whether she had committed adultery or not. But whatever the case was, her in-laws forgave her. But the Taliban executed her publicly in a soccer stadium hmm. to make an example of it. So so you this is what you have. You have like, I don't even want to call it a stone age, but, but the policies that they implemented in the 90s when they first came to power really has no place, is nowhere seen in Islam, in Afghan culture, or anywhere else. It's very, very important to see the Taliban for what they are. It's not an Islamic movement. It's not an Afghan movement. It's simply a proxy force of Pakistan's military intelligence. And one thing I forgot to mention is Afghanistan and Pakistan have had a long irredentist dispute over territories claimed by both countries ever since Pakistan emerged in 1947, because in, in the late 19th century, the British severed a significant, significant part of Afghan territory and gave it to India as part of making Afghanistan a buffer zone. And Afghanistan's governments have always wanted to reclaim those areas but those areas became part of the country of Pakistan in 1947. Afghanistan and Pakistan almost went to war on several occasions in the 50s and 60s. So you have this bad blood between Afghanistan and Pakistan. But I think it's important to see the power imbalance between these two countries. Pakistan is a much bigger country. It's a nuclear power. It has the sixth largest army in the world. Afghanistan is relatively much poorer, much weaker. And, you know, Afghan rulers also didn't play a very smart politics. So the the of creating proxy forces to have influence or to install puppet governments in Afghanistan has been a long-held policy of Pakistan dating back to the 70s. Hmm. The Taliban are, of course, a creature of that. Hmm. Okay, well, the last, I guess, chapter in this story would be starting with 9-11, right? And the um, American and international involvement in Afghanistan and then their recent withdrawal and the current situation. So can you walk us through like the past 20 years or so? Yeah. So in 9-11, we see a new chapter opening in Afghanistan with the collapse of the Taliban regime. Now, the Taliban were overthrown from power, but they were not defeated because they simply retreated to Pakistan from where they originally emerged. And the war, you know, the war on terror, Afghanistan became the epicenter of the war on terror. But it's important to understand that the real war should have been in Pakistan, where the Taliban had, you know, were able to easily retreat back to their base of support. 
And of course, Pakistan officially signed on to the war on terror and decided to become an ally of the United States. But they were playing a double game. They continued to support the Taliban. Now, when it comes to the women of Afghanistan, Afghan women were used as a very, you know, as a propaganda tool for to generate support in the West for the war on terror, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to go liberate Afghan women. This is a war for the women of Afghanistan. You saw First Lady Laura Bush the first lady of the UK, Tony Blair's wife, Cherie Blair, making all of those comments. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody was talking about, you know, liberating Afghan women. And, and, and you know, you had all types of feminists coming in and supporting that, critiquing that. And so, you know, Afghan women became a pawn in the war on terror. But at the same time, there were many positive things that happened because of that intervention, right? This this is a chapter that I actually an eyewitness to. For example, in 2003, my father was appointed the Minister of Interior. Now, my, my father is like a, a huge feminist, right? And he's mm. a product of 1960s Afghanistan when the country was much more, was, you know, very open to women's rights. And, you know, one of the first things he did was he appointed the, Afghanistan's first female governor wow. and appointed women to the police force. So there was a lot of hope in those early years, right, Hmm. about a new age that Afghanistan was finally going to come out of decades of war and rebuild the country. We were going to reconstruct the country. But unfortunately, one policy that the United States decided to pursue was that they re-empowered those same warlords that were that had torn up the country in the 1990s, right? And so they were able to reinvent themselves as bureaucrats. And so unfortunately, that did not really allow for, for a new beginning. So you have an Afghan government that, you know, eventually became not very, you know, competent or really playing a role in rebuilding the country. Also, the the international community that was so heavily involved in the reconstruction of Afghanistan, there was no really clear, coherent strategy. All the different countries that were involved, they all pursued different policies. And of course, Pakistan continued to play a double game. Now, amidst all of these problems, women did re-emerge into public life. So it's very important for me to point out that the U.S.-led military intervention after 9-11 was really the catalyst for the restoration of women's rights in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So for over a 20-year period, you see a whole new generation of Afghan women getting educated, getting great jobs, becoming breadwinners in their families, re-emerging into public life. But it was all very fragile because you know lo- new laws were implemented in parliament. Like there was a law on the elimination of violence against women. Well, that law or the idea for that law was very much supportive with the heavy involvement of the international community. There was really no indigenous, you know, political support. I mean, meaning the powers that be, because you have to understand that by nine, by 2001, Afghanistan's political leadership by that point in time had been heavily influenced by Islamist tendencies. And so the country that emerged in 2001, although it was a new beginning, there were many, the international community was involved. In terms of Afghanistan's indigenous politics, we, saw, we see the insertion of more conservative values being the domination of conservative values, the, the domination of Mujahideen, who all had Islamist backgrounds. So although the international community was championing women's rights, and which was very important within the country, you didn't really have a leadership that was genuinely committed to it. Hmm. So what that meant was that as whenever the international community left Afghanistan, everything was going to come crawling, crumbling down. And that's what happened. And then in 2014, so President Karzai, who was the president from 20, 2001, 2014, I mean, he's known to have very conservative views. He was a very close friend of the Mujahideen and warlords, and he was never... <laughs> a big champion of women's rights. Now his successor, Ashraf Ghani, who came to power in 2014, what I would call it, he kind of made women's rights as kind of like window dressing. So he would Mm -hmm. appoint a lot of women to key positions, some of them very young, other women that were a little bit older, but make himself to be a champion for women's rights. But he, he, they were both heavily invested in keeping those reactionary forces happy because they were the dominant political voices. So, and that meant that not really going too far in promoting women's rights. Now, you might be thinking, well, what if he did appoint women to very top positions? He did. But it's important to understand that when you're promoting women's rights, promoting a few elite women 
to governmental posts is really not the only way to to promote the idea that women belong in public life. For example, in 2015, I started the gender, the first gender studies program in Afghanistan, and I reached out to the first lady, Ashraf Ghani's wife, to support it. And she said, "I'm not, I'm, I can't support this because it's a Western invention." And I mm-hmm. said, "Well, look at look, look at the history of Afghanistan, right? The history of women's rights in Afghanistan did not begin after 9/11. It has it goes all the way back to the late 19th century." So, you know, she was more interested in not, you know, rocking the boat. And what I mean by that is not making those conservative voices angry. But besides that, a lot of my female students at the American University of Afghanistan went on to graduate school. Some of them opened their own businesses, began their own careers. So, you know, it it would be wrong to say there was no progress because there was. But there was also a lot of exploitation by NGOs, by a lot of these, you know, you know, I don't know, carpetbaggers, for you know, if you will, people who really jumped on the bandwagon of liberating Afghan women and enriched themselves in the process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it became a big business as well. But there was genuine progress because I was there. I worked at the university for eight and a half years, and I saw a brand new generation of Afghan women who were hungry for education, for jobs, for careers. Now, now I see a lot of those women are not here in the United States or in Canada or Europe or other places when if things if the Taliban had not come back to power, they would probably be in Afghanistan mm. doing all the things that they're doing outside of the country. Mm. So what happened to the women who were left behind? I mean, these are the women that we hear or read about rather in editorials in the New York Times. And please don't forget about us. What can be done now for them? Well, I mean, women's rights was legally enshrined in the 2004 constitution. Okay. So Afghanistan's first constitution was adopted in 1923. And then you had several other constitutions. And in 2004, a new constitution emerged where women had significant rights, right? But the Taliban have no regard for that, for any mm-hmm. type of constitution. They rejected the old Afghan constitution. I, you know, it's, it's very sad for me to say, but saving Afghan women is no longer politically expedient. In 2001, it it was part of the strategic calculus in the war on terror. It's no longer, you know, the global discourse has shifted. Afghan women were a convenient strategic issue in mobilizing support for the war on terror in 2001. That's no longer the case. So women who are saying that, you know, please don't leave us behind, please don't forget about us. I really don't, I think that's going to fall on deaf ears in places like Washington because Afghanistan is really no longer on the radar. But I do think, I don't think that the Taliban are going to succeed in in, in this way. I don't see them succeeding. You know, they, they, they are very hungry for recognition. That has not happened yet. But I do think that one of the reasons why Afghan women are in these dire straits, a lot of it does have to do with the failures of that 20-year war effort. And after the after the return of the Taliban to power, you really see this normalization of the Taliban in the international community. Mm-hmm. During the war, they were like the you know they were these they were the enemy, right? And now it's like well we have to talk to the Taliban. You know, very senior members of the British military community have even called them good old country boys with a code of honor. So the problem isn't just the Taliban and what they're doing. The problem also is you have very powerful countries, very powerful actors legitimizing them and normalizing them by always meeting with them, inviting them to big galas and very high profile meetings, giving them all kinds of publicity and photo opportunities. That's how you normalize insurgents, Hmm. terrorists. So they're not. So the international community is kind of a willing participant in the Taliban oppression of Afghan women, you know, and it's very difficult to see. And I've written about it and I voiced my concerns about it. And, you know, as we know, with, with the history of anything, powerful actors dictate the narrative. And the narrative that we're seeing right now is, you know, with the Taliban oppression of Afghan women is, you know, is, is, is normal standard business. And that's very, very alarming. And what's even more alarming is we have we have seen no single female head of state or any prominent female leader anywhere in the world come out and take a firm stand and make a forceful statement saying the Taliban, the deprivation of Afghan women's rights by the Taliban is unacceptable. 
again, because it's no longer politically expedient. And that's been very, very, very disappointing. And, you know, in, in the year 2023, you have a lot more women leaders than you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you see Afghanistan as the only country in the world where women are being deprived of their basic human rights, the basic rights that they have been given in, in Islam, and yet nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been reading too since they took over in 2021. It seemed like at first there was kind of this language to the international community from the Taliban, like it's not going to be like it was before. We're not going to, you know, they were seeming a little bit more progressive. But then they do you think that that was strategic just to kind of placate people? And but then they always intended to roll back women's rights because they have since. Right. It just seems like one after another. And each time they do it, there's an article about it in the media and then nobody's talking about it anymore. And now women, what's what is the maximum age that girls could go to school in Afghanistan now? It's like I think it's 12, 12. Oh, so adolescent girls cannot go to school. It's been over 500 days that teenage girls have been banned from secondary education. And also with universities as well, there was something something to the effect that they can't take university exams. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the Taliban took advantage of the fact that the U.S. was really, really wanted to leave Afghanistan. They wanted to end the war. Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, the Taliban always took advantage of the fact that there was war fatigue. The U.S. wanted to leave. And they took advantage of the fact that they were given all this legitimacy. There was also the the agreement that was made with the Taliban by the Trump administration really did not set any serious conditions for withdrawal, right? And of course, the Taliban took advantage of that. So at that point, it didn't. Really, they could have said anything, and nobody really cared. But yes, that's that's been their tactic all along. Is you know, promise things, but only those who have no familiarity with the Taliban's track record could possibly fall for those gimmicks. They were never serious about upholding women's rights. So that whole, you know, peace deal or or whatever it was called, it was called a peace deal. It was not a peace deal. It was a withdrawal deal. It was really just, you know, a a mockery uh, Mm. that the Trump administration got into. And Afghan women, you know, there was a lot of warnings issued by those familiar with the Taliban. But again, they fell on deaf ears because there was such a, a strong determination to end the war in Afghanistan. And it was being called a forever war. Mm-hmm. But anybody familiar with the Taliban and their background and their ethos should not believe for a second that they had any intention of upholding women's rights. So is there any hope for a grassroots movement in Afghanistan to overthrow the Taliban? And if so, what could a person like me, just a citizen of the United States who cares about Afghan women... Is there anything we can do to support, to show solidarity, you know, to show emotional support, but also to support, you know, financially or legally in any way? What could we do? I think one thing is to help keep Afghanistan in the news, Mm. Um, to have podcasts like this, to spread the word. Another is to, you know, write letters to your elected officials about all of this normalization, the whitewashing of the Taliban. You know, put pressure on your elected officials, write to your congressman or to your senator, you know, respond to newspaper articles that attempt to do that. So I think, you know, there's a lot of advocacy that that, that could be done, right? Putting public pressure on these types of schemes, you know, highlighting the fact that why aren't women heads of state speaking out, right? Why isn't like AOC, Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi, women who are very successful, who, you know, some, I mean, women of Nancy Pelosi's generation, I mean, I can't imagine how many struggles she had to get where she is. So I think start at home and call out. I think we have to start there and say, hmm, why, why isn't there condemnation, right? You know, just because Afghanistan is no longer geopolitically, you know, strategically important to the government, it's no longer a high priority issue. But what's happening there is, is you know, kind of, kind of goes beyond that. It's beyond just a political issue, things like that. And I think also another way is, you know, helping Afghan refugees here who, who still have families in Afghanistan. As for a grassroots movement, absolutely. I think that might be our only hope at this point. But what you see is that, for example, recently there was an Afghan professor. He was a man and he actually publicly protested about all the educational ban on women. And he's been taken into custody by the Taliban. 
So there's there's great personal danger within Afghanistan for people to protest and to make public displays, you know, against these policies. But there's a lot that could be done outside. And I think the first place is that trying to keep this news alive and relevant in the news. One thing that I've long advocated for is creating an endowment at a university for Afghanistan studies or the history of, or, you know, endowing a chair of Afghanistan history, something like that, putting money into that would be very important because Afghanistan's history is being erased now by the Taliban. And just there, there's a lot that could be done from the outside. And right now, I think it's very dangerous. But I think that the way that the policies being implemented by the Taliban, I think it's very diff- difficult for for any human to have any sense of normalcy under that type of regime. So eventually, I do see grassroots regime emerging. When that will happen, it's hard to say, given the current conditions. But you know, it seems to me that Afghan women are now it's Afghan women against the world. They're on their own. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very sad because they should be getting help from women leaders, at least at least a verbal condemnation. And we haven't even seen that. So I think in the past 20 years, when the world was with Afghan women, we saw a lot of progress. And now they've been completely abandoned. And regardless of what type of atrocious policy the Taliban implements, nobody cares. Not only does nobody care, but the Taliban are actually being rewarded for it by getting a lot of, you know, they they have not been formally recognized as the official government of Afghanistan. But I think that when you invite them to high profile meetings, when you give them all this publicity, it's a form of soft recognition. And that's very dangerous. And that emboldens them. That gives them confidence to implement these policies. Well, I'll be watching. I I am following Afghanistan in the news and we'll be watching so that it, if we see any signs of women rising up, men and women rising up against the Taliban, that we'll be able to support them. I'll be following your work as well, Dr. Jalali, and, and I'm so grateful for all of your insights and, and all of this new information. I'll be following your work as well and just want to thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Bahar Jalali. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.